But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaves does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Psalms 1 verses 2 and 3. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Streams of Water Bible Study Podcast. We're continuing our study of the book of Habakkuk. We'll be beginning in just a few minutes in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12. We're going to try to cover some ground today. But before we do that, Andy, you doing okay? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. Um, Hope you're doing well and uh, looking forward, as you said, to getting into uh, Habakkuk, and we've got we've got a lot of uh, material we want to cover today. So uh, a lot more than we've we've ever done before. So we'll see how, how too long winded uh, preachers get through it. But uh, lots of good stuff to talk about today. Based on our track record here, I'm I'm not so sure that it's <laughs> going to be uh, as quick as we think it's going to be. But why don't we go ahead and dive in? Would that be okay with you? And sounds and great. We'll, We'll start with Habakkuk chapter 1, verses, uh, verse number 12 through chapter 2 and verse 1. Remember, when we look at the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is asking some questions to God. He's having this back and forth conversation with God about the sinfulness of Judah. Andy, did you want to take just a second to bring us up to speed on what we talked about a couple weeks ago? Yeah, definitely. So we, we started out with really a, a question uh um, you could call it even a, a cry or a complaint from Habakkuk to God last time. How um, this is a different setup than what's normal for uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament, where um, usually a prophet is giving God's message to the people uh, of judgment or of hope and often both. But here um, we have this dialogue between Habakkuk and God and Habakkuk's question essentially is you know how long am i gonna am i going to ask for help and are you and are you uh how long oh lord um are you not going to hear me and the the issue that we talked about was um there was great injustice there was great violence um among god's own people in judah they were not being obedient to the law they were not uh, treating one another according to to uh, the character of God according to love. And so violence was continuing. Uh, Injustice was uh, rampant in Judah. And Habakkuk saying, how long is this going to last? You know, something needs to be done about this. And remember, he he gets an answer from the Lord that he probably um, didn't didn't want, um, uh, not the answer probably he wanted to hear. And God says, you know, you, you just look and see, I'm doing something that you can hardly comprehend. I am raising up the Chaldeans or uh, the Babylonians as we uh, know them. And he talks about how vicious and, um, and violent this and fearsome this nation is. And, and God is raising up this nation and he plans to use them in order to judge his own uh, people Judah. So again, you know, I think we're going to see as we we jump into our text today, um, this is this is something that kind of throws Habakkuk back a little bit that um, he's kind of shocked by. And 
um, rather than his this answer satisfying his question, it actually you know produces some more questions uh, for Habakkuk. So I think that kind of um, gets us up to speed a little bit. Is there anything you want to add before we uh, kind of get into it? Yeah, basically Habakkuk looks at the sinfulness of Judah and says, God, why, ha, why, why aren't you doing anything about this? How can you just sit back and look at all of this destruction and violence and the law being ignored? And God tells him, well, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, like you said, and, and they're going to pass through and, and they're powerful and they're going to serve as a rod of discipline for the people of Judah. And, and I like how you put it, that Habakkuk isn't really content. That answer doesn't really answer instead it creates another question where in verse number 12 of chapter 1 to chapter 2 in verse 1 Habakkuk asks his second question which is basically how can you use a more sinful nation Babylon to punish your people Judah yes they're sinful yes they deserve to be punished yes I'm waiting on you to do something about this but how can you use a people more sinful than they are to punish them you can see kind of the logical problem there. If you're going to punish a sinful people, how can you use a more sinful people to do that? And that's the question that we run into. So uh, why don't we uh, go ahead and, and read it? If Andy, if you don't have anything else to add, um, why don't you take uh, verses 12 through 14 and I'll read the rest. All right. All right. Habakkuk 1, uh, 12 through 14. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So going back here to chapter 1 and verse 12, I think it's interesting that Habakkuk's second question begins with an appeal to God's nature. He begins with an appeal to God's eternality. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? my holy one. Why does he do that, Andy? Why, why does he begin his second question talking about the eternality of God? Yeah, I think it's because he, he is looking at this situation. He's hearing this answer, and something's not matching up in Habakkuk's mind and heart because I think he has confidence in who God is. He knows that God is eternal, that God is faithful, and yet that's not that doesn't seem to be really consistent with what he's hearing about what's going to happen uh, to his people and and the way that God is going uh, to do this. And 
he, you know, he, he starts by saying, you know, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock have established them for reproof. So I think in one sense, he does understand this judgment. Of course, he, um, he, he was basically calling out for judgment earlier in chapter one. Um, but, um, what I think what he's, he's getting at here is he knows that, um, because God is eternal, because God is everlasting and faithful, he knows that, uh, Judah, God's people are, are going to, um, are they, they're going to, a, rem, a remnant is going to remain. Um, they are not going to be wiped out uh, forever because he knows God's promise. He knows God's character. So he has a confidence there. And yet he still, I think, is struggling with what's um, going to happen and really the means of which, by which God is going to bring judgment. But he starts being rooted in God's character as he uh, begins to, to ask this question. With the fact that when you think about when the book of Habakkuk would have been written, it was more than likely, you know, maybe a hundred years after the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria. Of course, they never completely returned back from that captivity. Uh, here, Assyria, Assyria has taken the northern kingdom. They're gone. And Habakkuk knows that God has made a covenant, like you said, with his people. So the question is, you know, God, you are everlasting and our eternality is tied to who you are. Where we are is tied to your nature and your faithfulness and the covenant that you've made with us. Uh, I think he does, like you said, understand that uh, this is going to be a judgment. This is going, the Babylonians are coming against us as uh, to reprove us for our sin. That's what he was asking for in his first question. And so that seems to be answered. He seems to understand that, to know that there's going to be a remnant, but this is going to be judgment. This is going to be a time of reproof. But then in verse 13, we get into that second question. He kind of responds to God's answer in verse 12. But then in verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? And then here's the really more, the, the most important phrase, I think, the man more righteous than he. So in verse 13, the complaint is actually kind of similar to what you find at the beginning of chapter one, where Habakkuk looked at the sinfulness of Judah and said, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? How can you just sit and look at this? Now his question is, how can you just sit there Whenever, whenever you have series wanting to comment there, I don't know. If you, I don't know if you're able to hear that. I did yeah. hear that. Yeah, Siri was wanting to make a comment there. She didn't um, get in on this. <laughs> yeah, but he, he's basically asking the question: How can you sit by and just idly look at the a, a nation more sinful than Judah marching in and taking them over and being this rod of discipline and reproof? Andy, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think here is 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 like kind of like I was alluding to earlier, but here is more where there seems to be this conflict in Habakkuk's mind about, okay, I know who you are, God. I know um, your holiness, your righteousness, and yet how could you how could you allow uh, a nation uh, so wicked 
uh, to swallow up, uh, swallow up your people who are also wicked. Habakkuk knows this, but are, are more righteous than this other group of people. That doesn't seem uh, to, to match up that, that God would allow this evil nation to triumph uh, while he sits idly by, at least in Habakkuk's mind. So he's, he's got this, he's got, the, there's this tension uh, for Habakkuk because he, he, he is confident in God's character. He knows he's holy. He knows he's pure. He, that he um, doesn't tolerate um, evil, at least in the ultimate sense. And yet it seems like the, what God is working to bring punishment to his people is inconsistent with Habakkuk's understanding of God's character. And, um, you know, I think this is, this is a question that is uh, probably really relatable to us. We probably really understand um, Habakkuk's um, sentiment um, here that it, it seems sometimes like the, the bad guys, the evil people, the wicked nations, uh, get away with things, and they're allowed to to do whatever they want and use their power to um, hurt those that are less righteous than them. And so this is a real struggle and real troubling for Habakkuk uh, to understand God's way of working um, in the world that is so seems to be inconsistent with his character, at least on the surface. Right. And so he, he moves throughout really the rest of the chapter by using this illustration of what the world is like and what God has done in the world and how Babylon interacts with that. He talks about basically this is one big pond, right? In, in, in Kentucky, we, we only have ponds. So uh, he, he said, he said, yeah, you're, you're over by the coast, Andy. He That's said, right. Here we just have the, the, the pond down the road. Um, <laughs> But uh, he said, you've made mankind like the fish of the sea. You've, you've made us into this, this uh, we're, we're all fish, like we're in this sea. And here's what Babylon does. They kind of stand outside of that. He uh, talks about how uh, that he brings them all up with a hook and is going to drag them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and, and it brings about great joy and gladness in the, the conquering that they did. And so he, I think, mentions their idolatry in verse number 16, that they're actually worshiping what they gather in, the riches and the people and the, the glory that they receive uh, from their pursuits and from their conquering. That's what they worship. They make offerings to that. They live in luxury. They're rich. Their, their food is rich. And the question, another question on Habakkuk's mind in verse number 17 is how long are you going to allow them to do this? How long are you going to allow them putting their net into the sea of the world, pulling out people and mercilessly killing them? How long are you going to allow them to, without mercy, conquer nations and bring in all this luxury and bring in all this richness? When are you going to pour out your judgment on them? Maybe he's thinking, I think he understands in verse 12, and he's confident that God is doing the right thing and using them for judgment. But like you said, Andy, there's a disconnect where he's wondering, you know, you're going to use this more sinful nation to punish the people of Judah. Well, it seems to Habakkuk that they should be punished. How long are they going to be allowed to do this? That's a pretty neat illustration. I think that he uses to describe the world and, 
and how Babylon is interacting with it at that point. Yeah. You know, again, we see Habakkuk really being honest and, and heartfelt, but this image that he uses, like you said, it's, it's, uh, it's very striking. It's poetic. It's, uh, startling even. And it just, it just gives you this picture of, um, the helplessness of these nations at the mercy of this powerful uh, empire, this this colossal force that is Babylon at this time, and you know you've got these other little nations just flopping around like fish caught up in the net with nowhere to go. It's a really it's a really powerful image, and you can you can kind of hear and and feel Habakkuk's desperation here that um, he, he, he's struggling to understand why God would allow such evil to continue on. And not only that, but it seems that God has some hand in raising this evil nation up, or at least allowing them uh, to, to go on doing uh, these, these things that are, that are evil, um, mercilessly, mercilessly killing nations forever, as he puts it in verse 17. And so, um, you know, I, I, I love, I love, again, Habakkuk's, you know, honesty, his vulnerability with God. And I think, again, um, I just want to point out that I think we can, we can really relate to um, Habakkuk's question. I know there's not direct parallel, but, you know, don't we see um, evil, wicked, insanely powerful nations basically running the muck in God's good, good world. And it seems like in, in some sense, they're, they're allowed to do so. Um, and we don't, we don't know all the plans of God. We don't know um, what God is doing. Um, but um, it sometimes seems like um, that, that the wicked win, that the evil win, and they, they get to continue doing that forever and ever. Um, kind of just struck me i don't know if there's anything to this but you know there's kind of there's kind of a contrast there in verse 17 when he says you know are, are you going to allow them to mercilessly do this forever and then a contrast from that back to verse 12 where he's pointing to the uh, eternality of god and he's he's recognizing that you know god's people are going to endure forever because god is everlasting and yet, but it also feels from his experience that evil is enduring forever. And so again, there's that, there's that disconnect because he knows, he knows that and has confidence in the hope of God's promise, but also it feels like um, this, this wickedness, this lawlessness is continuing on uh, forever and ever. If God's forever. Habakkuk is confident that his people will be forever. And then he's asking, are they going to be allowed to do this forever? Right. Well, one of those is not going to be able to stand. Uh, God's going to continue to be forever. So you see the two options, right? <laughs> Either Judah's going to be forever or they're going to be forever. So, right. um, yeah, that's that. I, I hadn't thought about that either. That's a great point to bring out. So what Habakkuk basically does is, uh, he says, I'm going to take my stand at, w at my watch post. I'm going to station myself and I'm going to wait and I'm going to look and I'm going to be patient to see what God is going to say in response to this question that I'm asking. 
this idea of standing and waiting on God is actually really interesting in the Old Testament. Uh, just we won't go into depth on these, but Exodus 33, 21 through 23 talks about how Moses stood in waiting to see God's glory pass before him. Uh, Numbers chapter 23 and verse 3 says that Balaam went aside to stand in waiting for the revelation that God was going to bring to him. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and verse 11 was commanded to go to the mountain and stand in waiting for the revelation of God that would come. And so this is really not the first time that we see something like this. And I think sometimes we need to realize this in our own lives that I have these questions and now I'm just going to wait and I'm going to be patient and I'm going to watch and see what God is going to do and how God is going to answer. That's where Habakkuk is. He's waiting and watching and being patient when the Lord does answer in chapter two and verse two. Yeah, this is another really um, interesting poetic image that the Habakkuk uses here. And um, it does emphasize that idea of, of waiting. And I, I, you know, I think we, we can detect uh, a lot of frustration in Habakkuk's uh, questions in his responses to God. But also I think, you know, this, this demonstrates, um, you know, some humility here and some faith that, you know, I, I don't understand what you're doing, God. I don't really get it. It's, it's difficult for me to wrap my head around. And yet I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait for your answer because I, I trust in you and I know that you are good and that, um, you will answer me. He's got some, he's got confidence that some answer is going to come. And so, um, you know, you know, pointing back to this, this theme that keeps coming up, you know, very, very relatable. You know, this is written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but I think we can, we can learn a lot from this and just, um, you know, this disposition to, to wait on God, to trust in his timing and his answer when, we've got these really frustrating questions and, and this, this tension going on when we, with what we see in the world doesn't really line up with what we believe to be true about God and his character and about our, our hope. So um, yeah, he's, he's waiting on the, on the tower there and waiting, waiting for this response. And of course, as we, you know, kind of move into the next section, God, God gives him, uh, an answer once again, perhaps not again, not what he really wants to hear or what he expects to hear, but God is is faithful to give him an answer. Well, let's see what that answer is. Um, if we can begin reading in yeah. uh, Habakkuk chapter two and verse two, Andy, I, I might read down to verse 11 and then I'll let you have the rest of it. Is that okay? All right. Sounds good. All right. So here, here's God's answer. Uh, verse two, the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil game for his house to set up his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Wow. Uh, Pretty neat answer there when we look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. And one that we're going to talk about, I don't think we're going to be able to go in depth on every word or every phrase just for the sake of time. There's a lot to talk about here. Um, But God begins in his answer, Andy, in verses two and three, by uh, basically saying, hey, um, here's something you need to write down. This is going to happen in the future. And there's a certainty that this is going to happen in the future. It might come to the point where, hey, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think this is going to shake out. He says it will. It's it's going to happen. So he begins with some some certainty there, right? Yeah, he says, you know, it's it is coming. You know, there is there there is um, you know, I think as we as we read there, there's there's judgment that is coming. So it looks like God is uh standing idly by um while this wickedness is happening and yet um it is assured um, to Habakkuk, and he says, "If it if if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay." Um, and again, you know that might not be what Habakkuk's looking for, but God's saying, "Just just wait. It might seem slow now, but it's going to come at the right time, and it will come. There's no doubt about it." And it reminds me of what uh, Peter says about. Um, I think it's in I think it's in Second Peter where he's talking about the, the surety of the coming judgment. And some, some you know, think that, you know, that it's never going to come and everything's going to continue as it always has. And yet 
uh, Peter reminds reminds us that you know the Lord is not slow to to fulfill His promise. It is coming. It will come. We have a surety of it. And there's a similar idea going on here in Habakkuk. Yeah, that's Second Peter chapter three, where uh, he says a number of things in response to these scoffers who were saying, "Where's the promise of His coming?" Like you said, all things have continued since the beginning of creation. And yeah, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, he's making that point to Habakkuk here. So in in verses four and five, he really sets up this contrast between what Babylon is like and their disposition versus what the righteous or just person is going to be like and the disposition that that person should have. So he talks about how uh, Babylon is puffed up. His, his heart, his soul is not upright within him. But in contrast to that, the righteous shall live by his faith, which is a powerful statement. It's echoed in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where here you have arrogant Babylon well, how should we respond to the questions that we have? How should we respond to the difficulties that they're going to cause? I don't think Habakkuk is going to be able to figure this out fully. We'll see that in chapter three next week in his song of praise. Um, they, what it comes down to is, are you going to live by faith or not? Are you going to be a righteous person or not? Are you going to be a just person or not? And that boils down to, are you going to live by the trust that you place in God, that he's going to be faithful and his promises will be fulfilled. So there's a, a really, I think, interesting contrast there between uh, what's happening in the present. Babylon is puffed up and what the righteous will do in the future in response to that. Yeah, it is a, it is a really interesting contrast. And if you really wanted to sum up, you know, God's response to Habakkuk's question i think it would be probably best summed up by that statement the righteous shall live by his faith you know you don't always understand what's going on in the world you don't always understand what god is working and what god is orchestrating you don't understand the evil in the world but the righteous shall live by his faith there's going to be there's a confidence for the righteous person that that has faith in God's character, that has faith in God's eternality and holiness, as Habakkuk has already mentioned. But these these prideful people who lift themselves up and they put themselves in the place of God and they uh, hurt the innocent and they uh, trample on the weak, those, they they don't have any ultimate hope. So it it might seem like uh, they're doing well, they can continue on doing whatever they want to do, um, in their pride, yet yet God reminds Habakkuk here uh, they're going to be they're going to be cut down. Um, the the one whose soul is puffed up within him he's he's not going to he's not he doesn't have the same confidence um, of living uh, like the righteous does. So definitely a contrast there. And we're going to see um, you know in as we talk about um, the rest of what we read there. Um, there's continually a contrast between Babylon and between God and also between uh, Babylon and the and the evil and the people who trust in in God um, as their hope and as their confidence. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So he, he's going to, this verse four kind of sets up and like you said, sums up what we're going to find throughout the rest of the chapter. And that's the fact you have arrogant and greedy Babylon and Habakkuk, God in answering Habakkuk is going to place five woes upon Babylon. And then in contrast to that, you have the righteous who are going to live by faith and place their trust in a God who is eternal and in a God who is faithful. So uh, in verse five, he talks about their arrogance. He talks about their greed, like death. Death is constantly consuming. And before I read this passage, I never really thought about that. Death never gets to the point where it says, you know what? I think I'm going to stop right here. Uh, As people, we're all going to encounter that ultimately. And so, uh, they're arrogant, like wine that is a traitor. It, it seems good going down, but ends up not being so good in what it causes people to do. The greed of Babylon, they never had enough. They conquer, he says he gathers for himself from all nations and collects from all peoples. Uh, it, the greed there that that we're not just content to, you know, do one or two nations and conquer them and take their riches. This is something that has to be worldwide. And so in verse six, God sets up this taunt from the nations that Babylon conquers and talks about the scoffing and the riddles and the taunt that they're going to place against Babylon. And, and like I said just a minute ago, that consists of five woes. Uh, so Andy, are you ready to, to walk through those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, the first one. Uh, comes in verses six through eight. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for and for how long? You know, again, that's a question that dominates the book of Habakkuk. How long and loads himself with pledges. It goes on to talk about how the debtors will arise and make them tremble. Uh, He talks about how you will be a spoil for them. So a great reversal in that where Usually you have Babylon conquering everybody else, but one day the debtors are going to arise and you will become a spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. And so here you have Babylon. They're taking everything that's not their own and conquering other nations. And God responds to that by saying, hey, one day these people are going to rise up against you. And they're going to take from you what you took from them. Yeah, there's this, yeah, there's this clear reversal here that, you know, what, what Babylon is doing to bring themselves power, to bring themselves security that puffs them up and gives them pride and, and allows them uh, to, to do all these horrible things and, and gives them this, this uh, sense of confidence uh, in their wickedness, this is the very thing that's going to be their downfall. And there's a, there's a surety of that. You know, this is a, a promise. This will come. And I think we're going to see that throughout the rest of the woes here. But um, one of the things that we, 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 you know, see here is that God in his response uh, to Habakkuk is saying, you know, I see Babylon's evil. I'm not idly looking by like it seems I am. I see what they're doing and I see how evil it is and I see how wrong it is. And one day there's going to come a time 
where that evil is going to collapse in on itself. Uh, it's going, they are going to be destroyed. They are going to face a downfall. They're going to face a judgment. And so you can bank on that. And as we continue on in these woes, this is just highlighting that God knows what's going on. He sees what's happening. He's angered by this evil, even way more than Habakkuk or anyone else is. And I so I think that's, that's a comfort to know that God, God sees this and God is uh, determined to, to bring judgment on uh, these evil people, even though it doesn't necessarily fit the timeline or the, the method that Habakkuk wants it to. Absolutely. Yeah, I think all that was really well said. I, I think another thing that might be good to point out here is that when you look back at Habakkuk's question, beginning in verse 12, and like we read a minute ago, going down to chapter 2 and verse 1, God, in his answer, seems to echo some of the things that Habakkuk brings up. Right. And so it's perhaps as if Habakkuk feels the need to stand in front of God and say, you know, Babylon, they are, uh, the, you made the world like this great, I like to call it the great pond. Uh, <laughs> you, you made it like this great pond and Babylon comes with their net and gets out all nations. And let me inform you on what Babylon does. And God says, I know that. And I'm placing a woe on them for that. This woe that, that one day those who they have oppressed, all nations, are going to come and oppress and plunder them. Um, so God is not only aware of it, but he's also going to act against it. Uh, that one day judgment will come for Babylon. Woe number two. Are we ready? Yep. Woe to him, verse 9 through verse 11, who gets evil gain for his house. It seems that this woe centers on the fact that here's Babylon. Like we said a minute ago, they're rich. They've gained all these riches through their conquering and through their pursuits of other nations. And they've used that evil gain to raise themselves up. And perhaps it plays on that idea of eternality that we discussed just a minute ago, where uh, we've set our, our nest, we've set our nation high, and we're safe. We're above the reach of harm. And God responds to that by saying, well, actually what you've done, it's another reversal, actually what you've done is you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You think that you've put yourself above any kind of harm that could come upon you, but you've actually forfeited your life. Uh, for this house that you've built, the stone is going to cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork is going to respond. So again, just a, a powerful answer here to this question that Habakkuk asked. Yeah, and we see we see this uh, a really uh, a really important biblical principle here that is seen throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. That the more and more that we pridefully, as humans, pridefully try to grasp for that security or that eternality or life or power by our own wisdom, by our own strength, the more and more uh, we're forfeiting real life, real joy, real security. Um, you know, it's like what Jesus says, you know, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is what Babylon is doing here. They are, they are not living by faith um, in God and his character and his promises. 
they are trying to take. And so instead of living by faith, they forfeit their life in verse 10. So again, there's this contrast between uh, the prideful and those who, who trust in God and live by faith. We might ask what it looks like to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, what does that look like? Here we find a pretty good list of what that doesn't look like. I think That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Instead, we find the arrogance and the greed of the Babylonians and the woe that is placed on them as a result of that. Uh, woe number three. Yeah. Verses 12, through, verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity you think about babylon like you said just a minute ago it wasn't based on the righteous shall live by faith it wasn't based on god's will it wasn't based on god's law but instead it's built on blood killing other people conquering other nations and it's founded on iniquity and so uh, he takes some time to respond to that in verses 13 through 14 is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Andy, what do you think about that response to a, a town that's built on iniquity? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful response there. I love verse 14. And again, there's just such a stark contrast you know babylon and so many human kingdoms throughout history we try to to make a name for ourselves we try to um we try to build ourselves up to establish ourselves in ways that are contrary to god's will it goes all the way back to the beginning of of genesis and even the tower of babel or tower of Babylon, where, yeah, you know, there's, in def, def, yeah, exactly, same word, um, in defiance of God's will, they, they build this great tower, this great city, and that's really the story of humanity and the story of these evil kingdoms in contrast to God. They, they exalt themselves, and they hurt others to do it. They push everyone down, and they build their empire, their kingdom uh, with, with blood. And with violence and with iniquity, and yet God's response is, you know, you're 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 putting all this energy and effort into to building this great kingdom, but you're you're doing that for nothing. That kingdom's going to fall. It's not going to last. It's it's going to be nothing. But in contrast, what's going to stand? Well, verse fourteen: the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a beautiful promise. You know, Babylon wants to fill the earth with knowledge of Babylon, the reputation of Babylon, the name of Babylon. But when it comes down to it in the end, everyone's going to know who God is. And when Babylon's punished, they're going to see God's holiness. They're going to see God's righteousness and they're going to forget about Babylon and they're going to God is going to be upheld as glorious. God is going to be upheld as great. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So that's a really, really powerful image, I think, about what's going to stand ultimately. What, and what really God is working all of these things together 
for. This is the this is God's purpose in doing all that he does. You know, Habakkuk doesn't quite understand why God is working among the nations in the way he does, why he's allowing this evil. And I think it's all it's all for this ultimate purpose of verse 14 so that God will be known, God will be glorified and that that knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's a city or an empire built on the wrong foundation. And because of that, all the building that they did was just going to be for nothing. It was just going to be burnt down by fire. And, and as it passes away, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to continue to uh, cover the earth. Wow. Just like the waters cover the sea. Um, that's a, that's a really a neat description there, thinking about uh, how God is going to stand and really maybe even thinking about our own lives, where what foundation am I building my life on? Am I living by faith? The righteous shall live by faith, because if I'm not living by faith, my life is built on the wrong foundation. And regardless of what I build on that foundation, uh, whether it's it's riches or power uh, certainly like the Babylonians had, if it's not built on the right foundation, ultimately it's going to be for nothing. And it's we're, we're laboring merely for it to all be burnt down. Um, but when you build your life on the foundation that God supplies, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, then that is something that's certainly going to last. It's not going to be for nothing. In fact, that will be for everything. Um, yeah, that, how about, that's really, oh, I was just no, going to say that, that's re, yeah, that's really, that's really well said there. And just to, just to add on to that point and just, um, continue on what you're saying, it's, are we, are we going to pursue our own glory, our own fame, our own recognition, or are we going to pursue God's glory? Because God will be glorified. He will be made known. It, the, the only question is, are we going to be a part of that? Or we're going to, you know, use our lives um, in such a way that's going to be swept away and we're, we're working for nothing. Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, what about woe number four? All right, let's look at it. That's verses 15 through 17, uh, where he says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Interesting. So here... It's not just about Babylon, and it's about Babylon's sin. We talk about how sometimes misery loves company. Sin does too. Sin loves company. Whenever sins are being committed, whenever wrong things are being done, usually we try to pull people in with us on that. And so he said, here we have Babylon, and it's as if, uh, you know, Babylon is, is drinking, of course, of this wine that is ultimately going to result in their destruction. We saw that just a minute ago about how wine is a traitor. And here I think we go back to that in verse 15. But it's not just Babylon drinking, but he's making his neighbors drink. And he elaborates on that. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk so that you can gaze at their nakedness. You make them drunk so that you can take advantage of them. And God responds to that by saying, of course, uh, we, we just saw the word glory, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In verse 16, you're going to have shame instead of glory. You, you think 
in pursuing this that you're going to build your glory, actually you're going to be filled with shame. He says, go ahead and drink. You want to make others drink and to gaze at their nakedness? He says, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. I don't think we have to go into the, the nature of that illustration, right? But just to note that the Israelites were, of course, circumcised, and that means uh, God's people, that they were righteous, that they were the ones who were supposed to live by faith. He says, go ahead and, and drink, and instead of covering, uncovering the nakedness of everybody else, show how you're uncircumcised. Show how evil and how wicked and how sinful you actually are. The cup in the Lord's right hand, he says, will come around to you, and it will, here we, again, like we saw just a little bit earlier in this verse, you have bookends in verse 16 with both shame and glory. He says, you think this is going to be your glory, but actually it's going to be your shame. He says, what you've done to everybody else is going to come back on you. Uh, Andy, what do you think about this fourth woe? Yeah, I mean, you you, you pretty much summed it up really well there. Um, but I love how, it, you know, it keeps turning back Babylon's evil on, on their own head, you know, what they, what they do to others, it, it comes back to them and they, you know, it's their, it becomes their downfall. What they, they mean to honor themselves, to bring glory to themselves. It's really going to result in their, in their shame and their nakedness as they try to shame others and expose the nakedness of others and, and pour out their wrath and involve um, them in their sin. That's what's going to happen to them, and you know, we see this image of uh, the cup in the Lord's right hand—a a common image throughout the prophets—and we see it come up in the New Testament as well. You know, this is a image of of God's wrath, and He He pours it out on the nations. And just as Babylon is pouring out their wrath, um, the Lord's wrath is going to be poured out on them. It's going to come back to them. The violence that they do to others is going to overwhelm them as we see in verse uh, 17. And so, again, we just see this stunning reversal of, of Babylon's evil and, and God's determination to do, to do justice. Great thoughts. And then woe number five, so we've seen four woes already. Woe number five is about their idolatry. We saw Habakkuk mentioned just a minute ago in chapter 1 and verse number 16 that what he uh, drags out with his net out of the world, he makes offerings to that. He makes sacrifices to that. We've already seen their idolatry emphasized. And so we come back, verses 18, 19, and 20, to find the idolatry that they involve themselves in versus God and who God is and how we should respond to God. Andy, do you want to uh, do you, do you walk us through this one and, and kind of, uh, talk a little bit about what this idolatry is about. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, I think I think what we've we've seen over and over is this really, really, really striking, beautiful poetry. Um, in order to make this really, really important point, he starts out in verse eighteen saying, "What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies." For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden, a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this 
teach. I just want to stop there for a moment. That's just, I mean, that's, there's so much that we could talk about there. But again, we see this tendency in Babylon that's being called out here that's really a tendency in, in the evil human heart to make the creature rather than the creator our God, to dumb God down and put him in a box so that we can understand him, so that we can control God and ultimately we end up making things that are no gods that are lifeless that cannot teach us that cannot help us that cannot give us wisdom because we are the makers of those idols that's what Babylon has has done they're they're looking for wisdom they're looking for teaching from something that they have made and they're putting their trust in nothing and so again there's this there's this stark contrast and I think it's, it's interesting to think about this in the context, wider context of the book of Habakkuk, where, where Habakkuk is having this real vibrant dialogue, this conversation with the living God, who he doesn't always fully understand, but that's not always a bad thing, because this God is wiser. This God is stronger than Habakkuk. This God sees more because he is the true God. He is the eternal God. And again, we see this, this thread of God's character being emphasized throughout in contrast to this, these lifeless, nothing idols that Babylon is putting their trust in. And again, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier about our foundation. Are we going to put our foundation on things that... Um, can give us no hope, can give us no confidence, or are we going to put our trust in God? There's no breath in these idols, uh, verse 19 says. But again, verse 20 is so beautiful. But the Lord, there's this, there's this contrast once again, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is present among his people. The Lord is the living God, and we should be in awe of him and be silent before him. You know, these these idols, they're speechless, they're silent because they're nothing, because they're made by human hands. But when we come before the living, the speaking, the vibrant God of all creation, we should be silent before him. So there's a lot to there's a lot to say there. That's it's such a rich little section there. What what else do you have to add to that, Tyler? Well, I was just going to ask you. You know, this is your opportunity to sing verse number twenty if you want to for our, for those who are listening. You know, well, you, that, you know how much I love hymns, but I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to sing. Uh, this All right. Well, you are turning down that that th- this is your one opportunity. This is the only <laughs> time I'm going to offer it. You know, that's um, that's so kind of you, Tyler. But um, you know, may, maybe we'll we'll reserve singing for another episode. You know, yeah, well, maybe I, hey, I'll, I I was just thinking about you. Well, um, that's that's how considerate of you. <laughs> yeah, I I love the contrast. Again, I can't. I, I don't think I can really add anything to what you just said. You have these idols who are created by man's hands, made out of wood, overlaid with gold and silver. They can't say anything. They can't do anything. There's no breath in them. But in contrast to that, here's the Lord. He's in his holy temple. So what does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? I'm going to stand in awe of him. I'm going to stand in awe 
reverential awe of how great he is and how awesome he is. So that's where God's answer ends in verse number 20 with that fifth woe. And I don't think he could have ended it in a more powerful way than by saying the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Andy, anything else to add to what we've suggested over the last few minutes? Again, this I feel like this could have been split into like three different episodes yeah. uh, where we could have taken a lot of time to walk through this, but we just kind of uh, given it a glimpse over. Anything else you'd like to add here before we give a challenge for the week? Yeah, just a beautiful, challenging uh, section here. And I think it's it's important for us to to, again, emphasize that God in his answer to Habakkuk doesn't give a lot of specific details about his plan. He doesn't give Habakkuk the answer that maybe he's looking for as he's, you know, standing on his, on his tower waiting for a response. But over and over again, God's response is his character, is his nature, that he is the living God that he is a faithful, eternal God who keeps his promises, who um, is, not, is not going to delay on his promise. It's going to come at exactly the right time. And he's just, he will bring evil to justice. And so over and over again, we see God responding with who he is to Habakkuk and then saying, okay, now that I'm reminding you who I am, Live by faith. We have faith in who God is because he is the living God, because we live before him in his presence, in awe of him and his wisdom and his plan. And we don't understand it. We're waiting to understand. We, it doesn't, doesn't seem to match up with what's going on in our world that is so horrible, that is so concerning and upsetting. And yet God remains who he is. And we can trust in that and we can live by faith. And I think that's the, the major takeaway for me, uh, hopefully for all of us, that you know, this will encourage us to see God more clearly and hopefully live uh, by, by faith in him. Which really plays in well to the challenge that we were thinking about for this episode and for this section of scripture, something that we can do. Uh, throughout the rest of the week and focus on until we come back together to study chapter three. And it zeroes in on that phrase that we've said so many times, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So often we have questions like Habakkuk and so often we go through difficulties and we get news that isn't good and we hurt and we feel pain and tears stream down our face and we don't understand why. And perhaps Sometimes we want to sit up on our watchtower and we want to ask God these questions and to receive an answer from God. And maybe it sometimes feels like we don't get the answers that we want or that we get the answer that we were expecting. I think Habakkuk could sympathize with us in that. What does it ultimately boil down to, though? When you think about life and you think about living on a daily basis and you consider the decisions that you're going to make today and throughout the rest of the week, you might have questions and you might be going through difficulty, but ultimately it comes down to this. If you're going to be righteous, you have to live by your faith. 
You have to place your trust in God. You have to place your faith in God. You have to believe in him and in his word and in his character with everything that you have and allow that to determine the kind of life that you live. It's like what Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. We play, we walk, we live based on our trust in God instead of the things that we see, instead of the things that we feel, instead of the things that we hear. So here's what I want to challenge you to do this week in view of that reality, living by faith. Walk through by yourself verses 6 through 20 and read those five woes again, the five woes that are placed on the nation of Babylon. What I want you to do, see, we, we said throughout this text that here's the opposite of living by faith. Here's the opposite of being a righteous person and what that looks like in the nation of Babylon. What I want you to do, and, and I think I think, and I think think this would be a good practice for us to do, is to reverse these and to say, okay, what can I learn from, from each of these woes about living by faith? Let me give you an example. So when you look at uh, verses 15 through 17, a woe is placed upon Babylon because they are making people join with them in their sin. Well, what does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to be righteous? Well, instead of inviting people to live with me in my sin, I'm going to invite them to come to know Jesus. I'm going to invite them to come and experience the love of God verses 18 through 20 is maybe another example again and and your answers might be a little bit different than what i'm suggesting but when you look at these idols that are presented in verses 18 through 19 if i'm going to live by faith then i can't be a person of idolatry i can't be a person who prioritizes something over god if i'm going to live by faith then i have to keep silence before him and stand in awe of him so think about two things in the midst of the questions that you have, what it comes down to is living by faith. That's number one. We have to live by the trust that we place in God and then walk through these woes and ask yourself the question, according to this section of scripture, according to this woe, what does it look like to walk by faith? What does it look like to walk and live based on my trust in God? Perhaps that will help us from this text to understand what it looks like and what it means to place our trust in a God who is beyond our comprehension, but yet a God who desires a relationship with us. Andy, any other thoughts on this text? Any other challenges that you want to offer before we, before we close? No, it's a great challenge. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge to, to live that out, to walk by, faith and um thank you for your thoughts i think that's going to be really helpful um for us and for our uh for our listeners as well and i just i really really just enjoyed um you know reading this and talking about it together it's really helpful for me and i hope i hope our listeners will be able to you know just see you know how how much relevance these minor prophets have and how how god's word can speak so powerfully to the things that are going in our world, but on in our world, but also how they speak 
to what's going on in our lives um, every day and how we interact with God and how we see the world. And um, hopefully it will encourage us to, um, to walk by faith and not by sight, as you're saying. Amen. Well, Andy, thank you for your insight into this passage. Uh, appreciate you. Appreciate being able to do this together. And, and to our listeners, we appreciate you for uh, listening. I think uh, we kept it within a reasonable amount of time. This probably isn't the longest that we've went, uh, but yeah, we covered not, more. But yeah, so, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, not to pat ourselves on the back for that or anything. I mean, we just <laughs> studied about arrogance, but um, <laughs> we, we we appreciate you so much for for tuning in and spending just a little bit of time with us walking through the book of Habakkuk. And we're looking forward to next week where Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity to walk through Habakkuk chapter three, this prayer that Habakkuk offers to God. Again, another beautiful and powerful section of scripture. Andy, I hope you have a great rest of the week. And to our listeners, we are thankful for you and hope that you're able to be blessed as a result of your relationship with God and your studies of his word. Thank you for listening to Streams of Water Bible Study Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future episode, connect with us on our private Facebook group called Streams of Water Bible Study Podcast, or send us an email at streamsofwater13 at gmail.com. That's streamsofwater13 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.